We're going to be in 1 Samuel 21 this morning. Welcome, I'm Pastor Tim. So good to be together with you, young and old, new and not so new here at Living Hope. As we dive in and prepare to dive into the text, I want you to think about a time in your life when you felt alone, time when you felt afraid, time when maybe you felt like you had no one. Maybe it was a moment, maybe it was years where you felt as though you had no family, no friends, no one you could trust, and fear began to to well up in your hearts. Um, I thought about a, a a brief time in my life. I was about 21. I had volunteered to uh, help build a youth camp in on Martha's Vineyard, and so I drove my Ford Escort about eight hours up to Maine, and I was preparing to be away for a month, away from family and friends. I didn't know a single person in the ministry that I was going to be working with, and the only way on and off the island of Martha's Vineyard is by ferry, and um, being um, young and, and not knowing what I was doing, by the time I got there, the last ferry of the day had already left. So there I was in this little town on the coast of Maine, not knowing anybody, no money for a, a hotel. I was a young college student, and the uh, ministry that I was working with on Martha's Vineyard had an arrangement with a little small town church where we could park cars there and leave our cars there to take the ferry over to the island to the ministry. So I parked my car in the designated spot at this little church, which was this gravel lot out back next to the graveyard. And so now it's getting dark and I unpack my stuff, I fold down the seats in my hatchback and I prepare for what would be a long dark night, essentially sleeping in the back of my car in a graveyard. And so um, I, I settled in and, and after a lot of tossing and turning and, and wondering and, and looking out at this pitch black night, I eventually did doze off, but but soon after that, I was awoken by a rowdy crowd of what I can only assume and pretty confident was drunk people who were probably coming back from a bar in this local town and, and decided to cut through this graveyard, right, past my car. And so part of me is like wanting to pick my head up and to see exactly what's going on and what all the commotion is. But there's another part of me that's terrified that if this group of people find out that there's a dude sleeping in the back of the car, right, I am I am going to become like a source of fun for them. And I was convinced that they were going to most certainly begin terrorizing me and, and, and uh, harping on me. And so there I was, alone and afraid, unable to sleep, even after they left, right, at this point now I'm, I'm, I'm all stirred up and my heart's beating and I'm wondering who's there, just waiting for the sun to rise and questioning what in the world am I doing here by myself in this graveyard with no one around. And and that theme, and maybe you can identify with that, and maybe for you it's not a funny story. Maybe it truly is a long, dark period of, of desperation when loneliness and fear gripped you. And that's really the place that David finds himself in in chapter 21. We know from last week that his friend Jonathan has warned him that Saul the king does in fact want him dead. David is now fleeing for his life and he has no one. His, his friend, his friend, his mentor, his political ally in Jonathan is no longer with him. He doesn't have that friendship, that camaraderie. He doesn't have Jonathan's advice. He doesn't have anybody to watch his back. He literally has no one he can trust. He has nowhere safe to go. It's too risky for him to go back home to Bethlehem. 
He most likely was afraid that Saul would have had spies there. He doesn't want to put his family in danger. And so he's running for his life. And this is really a low point, if not the low point of David's life. And honestly, he doesn't handle it well. And as we read through this chapter, there's not much admirable about David's actions and his character. We don't see the faith that we're used to. We don't see the courage that we're used to seeing in the life of David. He has no wisdom. There's not really much here that we can emulate in in what we're going to read this morning. David is going to make a series of bad decisions. He's going to make a series of stupid mistakes. And yet, God is still with him in the midst of all that. God is going to sustain him, equip him, protect him. And, and, and while you may not see it front and center in the story, make no mistake about it, God's sovereign, loving hand is still guiding David. And in that regard we can read this story whatever you're facing wherever you find yourself we can read this story this morning and find comfort and find hope for our own lives the while david is not in a great place the lord is in the best place he can be king of the universe right by our side so let's dive in and read chapter 21 i'm going to begin with the first nine verses then david came to nob to ahimelech the priest And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest. Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy. Even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For which was, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence. Which is removed from before the Lord. To be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here but that. And David said, there is none like that, give it to me. We'll pause there. David, we find out in the opening chapter, the opening verses of the chapter, he he runs about two miles to the city of Nob in Judah. This is the headquarters of the priest in that region. David, I suspect, is probably hoping that the priests are insulated from a lot of the political tension. They're not aware of his status as a, as a, a fugitive of the state. And so he goes to Nob looking for supplies. Now, if you remember from chapters 6 and 7, the Ark of God, the center of the tabernacle, the center of worship, had been misused. It had been misused in battle. It was captured. It's essentially still in storage. It's not going to be restored to its place of, of of national unity until David will later bring it to the capital of Jerusalem. So right now, the Ark of the Covenant is not in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is most likely still set up. It's still the central 
location for worship in Nob, where the priests are located. But everything is probably not operating exactly according to standards. So David shows up, and the priest Ahimelech is, is worried. And he, he's afraid. He's trembling, right? He thinks, well, there must be some trouble. Why is, is David here, this military general, this important noble in the king's court, is coming to see me, but he's alone, and he's worried, and what's happening? And so he says to him, why are you alone? Why are you here? What's your business? Why is no one with you? And the priest is now putting a, his finger on a, on a sore spot in David's heart, right? Calling out the fact that, that he's alone. And so David is going to respond by, by telling a lie. Because if you're like looking between the lines and trying to figure out, wait a minute, what's the mission he's on? Where David's making this up. David's lying. He tells the priest, well, I'm on a secret mission from the king and, and there's other men that, that I have set aside waiting to meet me. Now, maybe, maybe David is being a little bit optimistic about the other men. Maybe he's hoping at some point that somebody else is going to join him and he will have other people to fight with him. But he's trying to come up with a convincing story. He's trying to come up with a story to convince Ahimelech and trying to get the priest to believe him, but also trying to keep him out of trouble, right? He doesn't want to just say what's really going on because the priest will then either not help him or the priest is going to be incriminating himself. He doesn't want this, this godly man to be caught conspiring with an enemy because that's where David finds himself before the king. Now, unfortunately, David... David's plan fails. We'll read next week how the priest and his family end up facing severe consequences for helping David. But David is in need. He says in verses 3 and 4 that he needs supplies, right? He is on the run. He's likely not wanting to just show up in a town. He can't go to the open market and barter for food. And so he's like, look, I need some bread. You got five loaves. I'll take whatever you have. And the priest tells David, well, look, I don't have any regular bread. I don't have any common bread. I only have what he calls the holy bread. Now, here's the situation. In the tabernacle, in the central place of worship, amongst all of the altars and incense and tables that were set up, there was a golden table set up in the the tabernacle with 12 loaves of bread stacked up, two piles of six, and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel and was a symbol of the fact that the people of God stood before the Lord in worship and in prayer and in need. And those, those, those loaves of bread were called the bread of the presence, the people's presence before their God, Yahweh. And once a week, they would be replaced with fresh bread. And when they were replaced... The bread was given to the priests and their families as part of their provision. It was their portion, part of what they received serving at the tabernacle. They received a portion of the animal sacrifices, the grain offering, and in this case, the 12 loaves of the presence. So Ahimelech says to David, well, look, you can have this bread. It's all that I've got as long as you've kept the regulations for ceremonial cleanliness. Right, We know that in terms of the worship of God at that time and the Levitical laws, there was all sorts of purity laws, including abstaining from sex, that, required, that you were required if you were going to participate in a sacrifice or something at the tabernacle. So in verses 5 and 6, David assures the priest that his imaginary band of secret soldiers have all been kept clean right, and have not been with a woman. And so the priest does give him the bread. Now, all of this is very odd, and, and again, we're, we're sort of like, come on, David, this is not what we expect from you. Like, you're, like, you're the one who slayed Goliath. You're the one who stood up to King, to King Saul. But there's an important question here, even though we, we cannot defend David's actions. What about the priest? Is the priest in the right or in the wrong for giving David this bread? Was it okay for David to eat this holy bread? 
If you go back and, and you look at Leviticus 24, as I'm sure everybody's going to do, uh, but if you go back and look at Leviticus 24, you see that the original intention for the bread of the presence, it said, was to be given to the priest for his portion, right? And so what the priest here is doing is definitely outside of what we'd call the standard operating procedures of the day, right? However, theoretically, if that portion of bread belonged to the priest, and if the priest deemed that David's need was severe enough that this important member of the kingdom was in deep, desperate need, then theoretically it was within the priest's rightful jurisdiction to break protocol and to give the bread not to him and his family, but to someone else. Now I know what you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Tim, this is a super technical, obscure question. Why are you talking about it? Well, if it makes you feel better, Jesus actually addressed this question. It's an important question. Was it right? Was it okay for the priest to give David this bread? In Matthew chapter 12, there's a story. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field on the Sabbath day, on the holy day. And his disciples get hungry. And so they grab a couple of heads of grain through the field they're walking through, which was not stealing because the law actually allowed for travelers to to eat off the fields of, of fellow Israelites. But what they do that the Pharisees don't like is they grab the heads of grain and they rub them in their hands, right, and have a little snack of fresh cereal. And the Pharisees, who are legalists, say to Jesus, your disciples are breaking the law. They're doing work on the day of rest because they're harvesting grain. Now, I don't think that if you're a farmer, I don't think anybody would say that qualifies as harvesting grain, right? That's all they were doing. And so Jesus says... Well, think about this. He says, don't you remember this story? Jesus says this. Haven't you read about the time when David, how he was hungry, and David ate the bread of the presence from the tabernacle? Jesus says, your priorities are all out of whack. You don't understand God's priority for mercy. Yes, there are ceremonial laws and there are regulations of purity. And yes, we need to respect the Sabbath. But Jesus says to them, if you understood God's heart for mercy and to bless and provide for those in need, he says, you would not have condemned the guiltless. That's what Jesus says. Point being, Jesus' disciples are not doing anything wrong. You're not wrong when when you're hungry to eat, even if it's the Sabbath day. And, and Jesus is there also saying that David, while he is not acting in good faith, while he is not telling the truth, the priest is actually acting rightly. The priest is reflecting the heart of God to provide mercy and provision for those in need, particularly an important man of the kingdom like David was. This makes me feel better, I can tell you. Because for years, staying late here at the YMCA prepping for a meeting, cleaning up at a meeting for years, I'll be here late on a Sunday night or in the middle of the week and I'll get hungry. And so I will wander back into the kitchen where our supplies are and I will look through what's on the shelf and grab a little something, maybe from the Sunday school bin, have a little goldfish snack, right? That is, and Hope is giggling, that is until, I don't know, a year ago or Hope finally got fed up with buying Sunday school snacks that would be wiped out before they really should have been. And so she put this sign, this big red letter sign on the, on the box. Do not eat these snacks. These snacks are for the children. <laughs> right? And like it's intimidating. And so, that, so now I have this, this like dilemma. Because for years I've been telling myself, 
David ate the holy bread, right? Like, I'm the pastor of the church. I can have a little Sunday school snack, right? And so I found a workaround. Now I just go to the youth bin. And I eat, I eat the snacks for the youth group, which does not have a, 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 an intimidating, threatening sign on it. So, but if David ate the bread of the presence, right? Why can't I have some, have some snacks? So I feel very, very good and really appreciate Jesus clearing this up for us. But you hear the heart of the story, right? David, again, is not acting honorably and Scripture is not justifying his deceit. And the priest is, is in some sense pushing the limits, pushing the limits of the law. He's breaking the standard practice for the bread, but he's not breaking the law of God. He knows that David is alone and afraid. And God is working through the actions of the priest to bring mercy, to bring provision, to ultimately nourish the anointed one, to nourish David. And God, in the midst of these broken conditions, in the midst of this desperate circumstance, God is working through the priest to have mercy on David and to nourish him. See, David is ultimately not alone. God is with him. God is providing for his needs. God is providing for his needs as he does in that moment, giving him this bread to sustain him. But God is also equipping him. God's also equipping him for the fight ahead. Look at verse 7. Actually, verse 7 is a bit of a side note that will seem obscure until we get to chapter 22 next week. It mentions this servant of Saul named Doag. It says that he was there while all of this was happening in the tabernacle. He's observing it. Now, Doeg is not an Israelite. He's an Edomite. Okay, Edomites were one of the foreign nations in and around the nation of Israel. Saul had fought the, the Edomites, and apparently Doeg had either been captured and had become an Israelite, or maybe he had surrendered, but he's now a part of Saul's kingdom and army. And it's interesting, it says there that Doeg was detained before the Lord. You see that in verse 7? And we don't know exactly what that means, but we do know he was there longer than he really wanted to be, right? That's what detained means. Maybe he was physically detained. Maybe Saul had him there for some kind of punishment, like, go stay with the priest for a week. Maybe he was spiritually detained. Maybe he had been sent there to seek some kind of prophetic word from the Lord and God wasn't answering him. But either way, he's, he's at the tabernacle longer than he wants to be. He doesn't really want to be there. He's detained. And it may seem like an accident, but it is no accident. Doag's presence there that day, observing that Ahimelech was helping David, is crucial. It's a crucial piece we'll read next week in the power struggle between Saul and David. And it has devastating consequences. But we're told that the author is foreshadowing. So keep that in mind as we continue the story. David will actually admit next week, he actually will say, I was actually uneasy that Doag was there that day. I was worried that this was going to turn out bad, and it does. But in verse 8, now having acquired bread, in verse 8, the priest asked, or David asked the priest for a weapon, right? He says, look, I don't have my usual weapons because the king's business required haste. In other words, my, my expedition was urgent. I left in such a hurry that I forgot my weapons. Now that much actually is true, Right? David is fleeing. He doesn't have time to get his gear and his men and his provisions. Now the priest believes him. David still has a high reputation in the nation. The priest has no reason not to believe David's story. And so the priest says 
to David, well, look, this is like a house of God. This is a worship center. We don't have like a stockpile. There's no armory. He says, well, all that we have is, is Goliath's sword. Now, most likely what's happened, <clears throat> David kept, we read, the, the, the sword and the armor from Goliath after his defeat. The sword has been wrapped up in cloth, has been put behind the ephod, which is one of the, the royal priestly robes. It's probably some kind of like token of war. It's kept in the tabernacle as a symbol, as a reminder of God's victory, as a, as a way to honor the Lord, a trophy of war. Now, David is super e- eager to take this sword, right? First of all, beggars can't be, be choosers, and so if that's all that he has, that's what he's going to take. But this is a weapon that David knows well. David is the one who slew Goliath. David is the one who, who knocked him out with the sling, grabbed Goliath's own sword, and defeated him there on the battlefield. And so David is like, yeah. Give me that. He said, in fact, he says, there's, there's no sword quite like this one. Now, I actually kind of wonder if David went to Nob, if he actually went to the priest to re- retrieve this sword. I mean, there were other villages, other places he theoretically could have snuck into to find bread. But we know in 1 Samuel that swords are in short supply, right? He can't just walk into a, 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 a military outpost or he can't just sneak into some guy's barn and, and get a weapon. I wonder whether he actually went to Nob to get Goliath's sword because he knew... This was a safe place where he could, he could find a weapon. But either way, it is certainly God's provision, whether David was aware of it or not, God's provision that David now has a weapon for the years that he will live as a fugitive on the run for his life from Saul. David, alone, afraid, desperate, no one standing with him. And yet here God is working behind the scenes, working through events that had happened years before in the defeat of Goliath to provide and equip David. In fact, to equip David with not just a club, right? Not just like a a short little knife, but he's going to give David the best sword that there is. A sword that that there's no, no, nothing like this sword, right? Now David is is not only equipped with the the right weapon for his fight against Saul, but I think that him holding Goliath's sword was likely also a profound source of of encouragement, a profound reminder of God's faithfulness, right? Think about it. There he is, again, alone and afraid, running for his life, no one with him, unsure who he can trust. He's got five loaves of bread, and he's holding in his hand this profound reminder of the greatest victory, the, the greatest triumph that God has ever brought certainly in his life and arguably at that period of history in the nation of Israel. A symbol of who God was, a symbol of what God had done in his life. David is reminded of who he is, holding the sword, reminded, I am God's anointed. I'm on the run. I have no one with me. I'm scared for my life. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. But I slew Goliath. God gave me the victory. God gave me the courage. God enabled me to bring victory to my people. A reminder that the Lord is with him. Goliath's sword. Now, unfortunately, even though he's now nourished and now equipped, even now he's holding this symbol, unfortunately, it's going to take some time for that to to really sink in. Even though he now has food and a weapon, he's still running scared, and he's going to now do something really foolish. You think David's behavior is bad thus far. Let's look now and read the rest of the chapter in verses 10 and following. 
Because it's going to be some time before David's faith is restored, his courage is restored, and he begins acting sensibly again. Look what he does now with Goliath's sword in hand. Read verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. What in the world? David, nowhere to run, short on supplies, unsure of what to do. He weighs his options and decides that the least worst option is to get outside of Saul's jurisdiction, right? He goes 30 miles to the west into enemy territory. He goes into the Philistine city of Gath. Anybody remember the Philistine city of Gath? Anybody know anybody from Gath? A guy by the name of Goliath. This is his hometown. (laughs) That's where David goes. Get this. Saul is such a threat. David is so scared, so lost. His faith is in such a desperate position that in order to hide from Saul, he goes to his mortal enemies. Why he would do this, it's hard to say. Based on events later in the book, some commentators think that maybe David's intention was to try to enter Gath anonymously and to maybe hire himself out as as a soldier for hire. But his hopes to remain anonymous, verse 11, uh, don't materialize because before he can make it much past the gate of the city, the servants of, of the king of Gath immediately recognize him and like, hey, you're that famous guy from Israel that everybody's singing about, right? That, 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 that little ditty, how Saul struck down his thousands, but David is ten thousands, right? This, this song just will not leave David alone. It continues to cause him trouble. And his fame is rising, but it's, it's stirring up difficulty. It's interesting, isn't it, that they refer to David as a king. Now, Samuel, the prophet of God, has anointed David as a king, but David is not yet king. Now, maybe... They just know that he's rising in power and influence. Maybe they're ascribing a greater position to David than he actually has. Maybe word has traveled. Maybe they know that David has been anointed. But regardless of what their intention is in calling David king, we know that he is the true king. And they are recognizing, it's interesting, the enemies of God are recognizing something that the people of God have not yet realized, that David is actually the king. Now, when all of this comes out and David realizes that that they know who he is, in verse 12 it says he immediately becomes afraid. He's afraid of Achish and he's like, this was a bad idea. What am I doing here? Right Now maybe he's afraid because he knows, look, if the king of Gath knows who I am, word is going to spread, Saul will find out I'm here. It's only a matter of time before Saul shows up and arrests me. Maybe he's afraid because he realizes if they know I'm David, certainly word's going to spread through the city, and God forbid that Goliath's brothers show up here tomorrow, right, hearing that I'm here. So he's afraid. Maybe he's afraid because he feared if the Philistines truly believe that I am king of Israel, 
they're likely to arrest me, imprison me, or execute me because they will see me as the, the king of their enemy nation. Either way, he's stirred up with great fear. And so in verse 13, he does the next logical thing. He does what any of us would have done in that situation. No, it's not logical. I don't know what I would have done in this situation. I don't think this would have been my go-to move. But his go-to move is like, I know, I'll just pretend to be an insane person. And we're like, what? Is this the same David? Is this the same David we've been reading about? Right? And so he literally just starts acting crazy. And he starts drooling. And he starts scribbling on the doors of the city gate. He's probably mumbling. He's trying to make them think he's insane. And it works. Right? And the king of... The king of Gath, Akish, he, he says and scoffs quite sarcastically, what are you guys doing? Why did you call me out of the palace to come out to the city gate? Do I not have enough crazy people in my own administration? Do I look like I need another madman to come in and, and serve me? Right? I've got plenty. What is this crazy Hebrew doing here? Now, either the king no longer believes that this insane person is actually David, or he thinks that it's David, but David has lost his mind. Either way, he wants nothing to do with the guy, right? And in the process of all of this, David is able to escape from Gath. No longer useful, they left him or whatever. He runs out of the city. He's going to go find another hiding spot. We read the, the cave of Adullam. What was he... Planning. What was he trying to get out of running to Gath? From beginning to end, it was a bad idea. Nothing good could come from David showing up alone, carrying the sword of Goliath in the city of Gath. Whatever he's doing, he's driven by fear, he's driven by desperation, he's driven by foolish thinking. And yet, despite David's stupid stunt... Despite his willingness to literally walk into the lion's den, somehow God protects him. Somehow he makes it out of the city. There's no way. There's, uh, you, you run through this story a thousand times. There's no way he makes it out of there alive. And yet he does. He does make it out of there alive. Things should have gone differently that day. And I believe the only reason he survived, the only reason he was able to escape, was because I believe God's gracious hand was on him. God's provision was protecting him. That no matter what David does, God's not going to leave him. God's going to guide him. God's going to nourish him and equip him and provide for him and protect him. God's going to save him for the next day and the next day and the next day until he takes his rightful place as the anointed king of Israel. Throughout this chapter, the only thing we can say is that David's actions at best are foolish. And many of them are in fact sinful. David, we see, lacks faith. He lacks courage. David clearly lacks direction. He resorts to lying, to deceiving the priest. There is nothing in David's behavior in this section that is honorable. There's nothing here that we should follow. David is scared. He's alone. And the result is that he's making rash decisions, poor decisions. Going to Gad was about the stupidest thing he could have done. And once he's there, the idea that he was going to act insane to avoid death, right? This is not a king. This is not a general. This, this, is, this, is a, this is a young man who is terrified. One of the reasons he's terrified is because he's all alone. Jonathan is not with him. Without Jonathan, he's a bit lost. We'll read next week in chapter 22 that, that 
David's father and brothers join him. In fact, 400 soldiers are going to join David. And it's only once he's again surrounded by faithful Israelites. It's only again once he has his brother and his fathers and and other men around him that David will begin acting like a godly, wise, brave leader. But now, alone, like many of us, Think about it. Think about where you would be without your spouse, without your brothers in Christ, your sisters in Christ, without friends, without people to hold you accountable, right? I don't know about you, but it only takes about 72 hours before I'm doing stupid things like David does. It seems as though David is no longer looking to the Lord. One commentator described David's situation like this. Taking one's eyes off God invites fear to rush in. And fear can lead to desperate and dangerous actions. Many, many of us have found ourselves in the place of of desperation, dangerously trying to lead the course of our lives, and often that's rooted in fear. It's a low point. It's a low point for David, probably the lowest of the, the low, and yet as we've seen, God is sustaining him, God is equipping him, God is protecting him. I want to come back to Psalm 34, George opened our service today, right? The Masoretic text describes this psalm that David wrote as one that he wrote after he changed his behavior. Before the king of of Gad, after this happened. I don't think David wrote this while it's happening, right? This is clearly a guy who's looking back, who's reflecting on his fear, on his loneliness, on his desperation, on his stupidity. And David is reflecting back and listen to the heart of a man who has learned and seen the hand of God at work in the midst of his desperate situation. situation. And now David can say this, I will bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David says in verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you see what's happened as David comes out of this low point? As he comes out of this desperate situation, he's now has his eyes rightly fixed back on God. And he says, the Lord was with me. The Lord saved me. I sought the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He delivered me. He answered me from all my fears. David referring to himself there as this poor man, this king of Israel who's not lost his humility. This poor man cried out to God and God heard me and he saved me out of my troubles. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who takes refuge in the Lord God. And so David says in verse 9, fear the Lord because those who fear him have no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In the midst of of difficulty, in the midst of fear, in the midst of feeling betrayed and alone and living on the run and confused, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Because the angel of the Lord, the very Spirit of God, encamps around those 
who fear Him and delivers them. And so we now think about ourselves and what we are facing. Think about the low point of your own life. Maybe for you, it's this season of life. Maybe you find your faith struggling. Maybe you're in a a season of desperation, whether it's physical need, spiritual need, relational struggle. Maybe you're here today and you feel alone. Maybe you feel like no one really knows who you are. No one sees you. No one understands you. And there's people all around, but every day you deal with loneliness. Maybe you're overcome with fear. Maybe you're a person that on a daily basis struggles with worry, with anxiety, with the crippling fear of the unknown and what is next. Some are here today, and unlike David pretending, unlike his pathetic act, some really do battle with overwhelming mental health struggles. And maybe for you, it's not something you're pretending. It's something you every day wake up with the plague, with the struggle, with the difficulty of your mental health. Whatever you're facing, when you are alone, when you are afraid, when your faith struggles, when you make mistakes, when you act foolishly, know this, God is still with you. God is still with you. The Lord says in His Scriptures, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And we can know that and we can believe that because God Himself came. I love this about our Christian gospel. God didn't send an angel. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't didn't send a really good-looking, wise, inspirational leader. God himself came. God in the flesh came to earth. Fully God, fully man. Our Savior Jesus, the true anointed King of God's people, came to earth for you and I to, to validate, to live out, to fulfill the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so he came. He came, and so that means that you are never alone. That means you have no need to be afraid because because Christ came and He lived for you. And Jesus faced His own fair share of false accusations and desperate situations and life on the run. But Jesus remained faithful when you and I wouldn't. Jesus kept His eyes on the Lord when David didn't. Jesus sought the Lord and cried out to the Lord consistently in faith. And He lived the righteous life. He lived the life of dedication to God and trust in God that you and I cannot. And though he did not sin, though he never turned his eyes from God or failed God, he was crucified, he was executed, he suffered our punishment. What you and I deserve, because you and I have turned from the Lord, have sought our own way. And so Jesus took on our disobedience, our lack of faith, our sin, our selfishness. He died in our place that we could be restored to God, that we could never again be alone, that we could know God as Father, that we could walk with God as Savior and friend, that the very Holy Spirit of God through the resurrection could fill our hearts. Because the beautiful good news of the Christian faith is not just that there's a God. It's not just there's a God who knows you, but a God who loves you. A God who sent His own Son to die on the cross that you could be reconciled to God. But not just that your old life is washed away. Not just that your sinful record is canceled out. But now you're filled up with the Holy Spirit. Through the resurrection, you're empowered to walk with God, to live as a son of God, to live as a daughter of God in right relationship, in intimacy, in closeness, in obedience. And now we grow in faith. Now we grow in obedience day after day, being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the good news of the faith. And that means that you're never alone. That means that you have no need to be afraid because God knows you. God sees you. God has rescued you and brought you to himself. And so today, put your trust in that. Put your faith in that. If you call yourself Christian, ground yourself in this beautiful gospel that transforms every moment of every day. And if you're here this morning and you long, you long for companionship, you long to be loved, you long to be forgiven, you long to have purpose, come to Christ and put your faith in Him today. 
that you could know the God of the universe, your creator, your father, your savior, that you could have hope, that you could have purpose, that the fear that you live in, the confusion that you live in, the numbness that you live in, today you can be set free and you can have a new life. You can be born again. This is our hope that we never have to be alone and we have no need to be afraid. This is the gospel truth. This is the truth that we see lived out in David's life despite his every opportunity to to invalidate it. God won't leave him. This is the, the truth that's for you and I. It's for the man who called me this week because his nephew was in such a deep, dark, lonely depression that he tried to take his own life. It's for the, the man whose fiance just broke off their engagement. It's for the man this week who confessed to me that he deals on a regular basis with crippling anxiety, overwhelmed about, about financial stability and how he and his wife are going to manage in retirement in, in an old age. It's about the couple this week who my wife told me about. Young couple, three kids. The man's just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. It's for the teens here that feel like no one really knows them or understands them. It's for the the widow and the widower that are still daily burdened with grief. It's for the parents whose child have walked away and they struggle with desperation and hopelessness. You're never alone and you have no need to be afraid because through the work of Christ, we now have a God in heaven who doesn't stay in heaven, who comes down to us. Amen. He comes down to nourish you, to equip you and to protect you. Listen, God nourishes us with Jesus himself, the very word of God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We nourish ourselves day after day on Christ himself, the very bread of life. First Peter says that we've been born again through the living and abiding word of God. The good news that was preached to us is what causes us to be born again. And Peter would go on to, to write and explain to us that, that this word, like newborn infants, he says, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There goes Peter quoting again from Psalm 34. Then he says, you need nourishment, you're alone, you're afraid, nourish yourselves on Christ himself. Nourish yourself on on Jesus, the the living and abiding word of God that has left for us this, this revelation. Like newborn infants long for the milk of the word that will nourish us. God equips us. God equips us with the very armor of God, the, the, the word of God. Everything that we need for life with him, we have been equipped The book of Ephesians calls us to put on the armor of God and says this in chapter 6, verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of the faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There are darts. There are accusations. There are fears. There are struggles. There are hopes that are dashed. There, are on, there is ongoing temptation. And so God gives us a shield. He gives us the shield of faith that we can use to block and extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up, we're told, the helmet of salvation. Guard your mind. Guard your heart with the armor of God. And take up the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's David with a couple loaves of bread and Goliath's sword. What do we have? 
We have Christ Himself. We have the very Word of God. We have the sword of God's Spirit to do battle against the enemy, against the evil one. Because make no mistake about it, like David, there is an enemy that pursues us. There was an enemy that would love to steal your hope, that would love to steal your joy, that would love to, to, to suffocate you with, with sin and with temptation, that would love to destroy your family, that would love to end your marriage, that would love to steal your hope. And yet we have a sword to do battle. Paul writes to young Timothy and reminds him all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This Word that we have is inspired by God Himself. It is His living, breathing, and Word that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Just like David had that sword to equip him for what lay ahead, we we are equipped with the Word of God. The very Spirit of God at work as He speaks to us, as He guides us, as He nourishes us, as He equips us, not just for life, but for the battle, because there is a fight to fight. And we can now walk in the will of God and fight the good fight, and fight the good fight, knowing that God will protect us. That just as God protected David, God protects us. He upholds us with His sovereign hand. He guards us until the day that we meet Him. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, that he would hold his sheep. Jesus said, not even the devil himself can snatch the ones that I have called out of my hand. You are secure. Not because of your faith, not because of your actions. If David couldn't do it, you and I can't either. But we are held in the hand of God because God himself holds us. And so the Apostle Paul, with the heart of God, would say this in 2 Thessalonians 3, pray, pray that we, pray that you and I, Pray that that God's children be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. And you look around at the world around us and you say, Amen to that. Not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. The Word of God says the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. That no matter how low you get, whether you're lower than David... No matter what you have to resort to, no matter how desperate you are, whether you're running into the camp of the enemy thinking that somehow that's going to save you, the Lord will guard you. He will protect you against the evil one. He will establish you. You have no need to be afraid. You never need to be alone. Because our gospel is a true gospel and it changes our lives. The Word of God nourishes us. The Spirit of God equips and sustains us. Your Father looks on you with love and with favor. Even in your hard times, even in your low points, He walks with you and He sustains you. Know His love today. As the worship team comes, we're going to close out again with a song of worship. I want to remind you that through the work of Christ, there is hope. Through the work of Christ, you you have a Savior who comes alongside. You have a Father who oversees, who protects, who anticipates the threats, who knows... And as, we, as we've heard before, He provides the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, giving you peace that passes all understanding, even in the midst of dark fear, even in the midst of desperate loneliness. God, your Father, God, the Son who came to earth, God, the Holy Spirit, stands with you, nourishes you, equips you, and protects you. Because the team plays, let's pray together. For those that want to stand and declare this song in faith, I invite you to stand. For those that find themselves in a place of, of desperation, you may want to kneel. You may want to stay quietly in your seat. Let the Lord lead you as we worship this morning. God in heaven, we thank you that you're faithful. 
We thank you that you're faithful. We see it in the life of David. We see it through the work of Christ. We see it again and again through the testimony of your word, through the lives of the saints that are here with us today. And I pray, God, for those that find themselves in a place of desperation this morning, for those that are in a season of loneliness, in a season of fear, for those that this morning whose hearts ache for loved ones, for sons and daughters, for family and friends that are far from you. God, we hold on to the promise of your faithfulness, that you are faithful yesterday. You're faithful today. You're faithful always, Lord. Our hope is is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is not in, in our ability, but in what you have accomplished for us. Fill us with your love this morning and your hope that we could know your nourishment. We could walk out of here equipped that we could walk confidently in your protection. Hear our praise, Lord.